Cap's a fashion plate, and the Joes are a bunch of clowns. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of Origin Story, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This time around, I have two comics for you, both of which came out on September 8th, 1987. They are G.I. Joe, number 66, and Marvel Age, number 57. And I know at the end of last episode, I said I was going to start with Marvel Age 57 and then do G.I. Joe, number 66, but I decided not to bury the lead and flipped it around, so I'm going to start with G.I. Joe and then take a brief look at Marvel Age, just as I have done with the other issues of that title. So let's start with the Joes, an issue that I have been looking forward to for the past two months. G.I. Joe number 66 has a cover by Mike Zeck and Bob McLeod, and I should point out that this is the very last G.I. Joe cover that Mike Zeck would ever do, finishing up a run as cover artist that was amazing. The cover shows Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow standing outside a window through which we see Olga pointing a gun at Quick Kick, Snowjob, and Stalker. This, if you haven't guessed it, is the final part of the Joes in Captivity storyline that started in G.I. Joe number 61. While issue number 61 is my favorite cover of the entire storyline, I still really do like this cover. It recalls the original cover in a way, and also gets us ready for what is going to be a really good issue. I remember seeing this at the comic store and being really excited because this was the one. This is what I've been waiting for since I started reading the series on the regular, especially when it became evident that Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow were involved. The title of the story is The Tenth Letter, and our creative team is as follows. Larry Hama Script, Ron Wagner Pencils, Randy Emberlin Inks, Bob Sharon Coloring, Joe Rosen Lettering, Bob Harris, editor, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. We open beneath the Language Center in San Francisco where Billy had been taken a couple of issues back. Storm Shadow and he are hanging from the ceiling and Storm Shadow is teaching his young protege about the katas and the kuji no in as part of his training. They are interrupted by Jinx who shows him some intelligence that she has gotten, specifically a clipping from a newspaper that shows the members of a European circus. They recognize one of them as Scarlet. We then head to Barovia, where the circus is rehearsing and Olga and Sergeant Mosiev are watching them. Mosiev then approaches one of the performers, the White Clown, and ridicules him by mentioning his former love, Magda, who was arrested for speaking out against the government and then sent to a gulag. One of the other performers, a little person, talks back to the sergeant and he is slapped. The two soldiers leave, and while Scarlet tries to comfort them, she's brushed aside. She then laments that the way they're going, they'll never find Stalker and company. 
But then Storm Shadow, Jinx, and Billy show up and to say that they know where they are. Later, the little person, his name is Orlovsky, he's actually a human cannonball, checks in under the big top to see the six new arrivals signing out the ten letters of the Kujonin. They form nine, and then Storm Shadow explains the tenth letter, the Void, the nothingness that is the controlling element in Zen swordsmanship. It is the clearing of the mind and soul that must be undertaken before battle. And with that, it is time to take their friends back. Orlovsky runs to the White Clown's trailer, and he tells them that he has a solution to their problem and a way to find Magda, who is, which is selling out the Jost to the Barovian military. At the Gulag, the guards are on alert as an escaping prisoner has tripped an alarm, and then a few of them are taken out by the Joes. Olga heads up to the guard tower and punishes some of the guards who were asleep on the job and let the prisoner escape, and then she heads to the barracks and tries to shake down the prisoners to find out who escaped and who helped them. Boris, who's a sneaky one from an earlier issue, tries to in implicate Snowjob, but Olga points out how sick Snowjob has been, and he hasn't really had the strength to talk so she has the guards take Boris away. Olga heads off to bed while the guards work Boris over in a shack. Then the guards come face-to-face -face with our team, and they're taken out. The team heads to the barracks with the guards' guns, and they give them to the prisoners, who are suspicious at first, but then Stalker says that they are his friends, and they're here to help. The inmates take up arms and help the Joes into an APC. The Joes offer to help them flee the country, but one of the prisoners says that this is their country, and they say they're not going that they're going to flee and hide in the mountains, but not before taking care of something first. They kill Olga, and then they leave. Some time later, the Joes reach the river, and they find it very well guarded. It seems like they won't be able to make it over the river and cross the and over the border because of the fence and, and guard towers at the bridge that they've reached. But then the white clown rolls up with a giant cannon. The cannon used for Orlovsky, the human cannonball. Sergeant Mosiev arrives at the river crossing and he sees the circus cannon set up on a hill above above him and along with the chosen stalker who is pointing to a rifle at him. They get one another in each other's sights and Mosiev ends up going down. Stalker drops his rifle and then climbs into the cannon and he's shot across the border. Orlovsky and the White Clown are left alone and they look over at the border to the other side. Orlovsky says, we could have turned them in. We could have made a deal. Now they will hunt us down. We have lost everything. We will escape, the White Clown replies. Have faith in our resourcefulness. To have turned them in would have violated everything Magda believed in. We have lost nothing. In fact, we have gained everything worth having. I think when I was 10, I was expecting a little more with this issue than what happens. Maybe something along the lines of G.I. Joe Yearbook number 3, which had that great risk rescue and ninja fight. But this is a break-in and a get-out operation, something that was always going to be a lot quieter than having any huge battle that would happen if Cobra was involved. The Barovian Gulag is a prison, and it is run by the type of people who don't have ninjas and ab-master scientists at their disposal. Plus, if you think about it, within the context of the larger world in which this all takes place, making a lot of noise here would cause a serious international incident that would make this story even more complicated. I'm also getting the feeling that Hama is getting Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow deeper into their own world and their own sense of purpose outside of the G.I. Joe or Cobra teams. Since I am not sure how the series plays out from here, I don't know how much deeper they will get in this from here on out. 
but this has all served the story well, as they are all operating outside the law, so to speak. It's a quiet way in. Hama does a good job as making it slick as possible, as far as the rescue is concerned. And what he does is also add a little characterization to someone who we just only got to know. We don't necessarily need to know about the White Clown and Magda, but this adds some tension to the story because it adds a layer of possible distrust to both him and Orlovsky. Hama places the conversation on the White Clown's dressing room on one page of the entire issue, and that winds up providing a red herring for what will happen later. We think that they will actually betray the Joes, but then they're right there for them, and that's where this message about ideals over what's personal and uh, what you stand to gain comes from. Speaking of which, one of my favorite scenes in the issue is the scene with the prisoners in the barracks. There really hasn't been any sort of one-for-all and all-for-one type of thing here, and I think we're all supposed to get the impression that Stalker and company are just scraping by. When he says that Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are his friends, they know exactly what is going on, and I love how instead of fleeing with the Joes, the prisoners are all, nope, we're taking our country back, and we're going to start with this camp. And they go in and they kill Olga. It's just such a great moment. My favorite moment of the issue, though, obviously the ending with Stalker and Mosiev. They see one another in each other's rifle scope, stand off, and then Stalker shoots him. It's payback for all of the extra nastiness that Mosiev put him through back in issue 62, and just everything that has gone on. It's a great issue and a great storyline. Hama's writing is tight, especially since there is only one plot, and he doesn't have to focus on toys or other plot lines, and the artwork continues to be crisp and dynamic. Ron Wagner and Andy em- Randy Emberlin are great on this comic, and I can't let their contribution go ignored. They won't be the art team on the next Yerja comic I review, so at least I got to see them out on a nice high note. And that'll do it for this comic, but I'll be back after this with Marvel Age number 57. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered Red Kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98 with the 300s. Lori the Morris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics Podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. Marvel Age number 57 retailed for 50 cents, and it has a cover by Tom Morgan and Joe Sinnott. The cover copy says, You've already seen Spidey, Iron Man, and the Hulk, and Thor's new look. Are you ready for the new Captain America? And we see the black costume Spider-Man, the new Iron Man, the Grey Hulk, Thor, and Cap in his black and red Captain costume. So this is going to be the focus of our issue. And just to take a look at the issue, the coming attractions, the very first page show in a in a recreation, uh, a Mike Zeck and Bob McCloud recreation of the Avengers number four. 
where Captain America lives again with Cap the Captain, the Falcon, D-Man, and Nomad from Captain America number 337, um, which is, is a big part of this storyline. John Byrne did the cover of Amazing Spider-Man number 296. Again, I was, and, and McFarlane was drawing uh, Hulk, so I if, if I had stuck around with, with Spider-Man, I would have been on the cusp of the McFarlane era because it was very, very close to, I think McFarlane's first issue was 298 or so, and I know I would have been on the cusp of Venom as well, but I just didn't, didn't do that. Uh, Punisher tackling the problem of toxic waste and the more coming attractions thing, and Mike Mignola did that, did that cover. Um, there's a mutant report. It says persecution, betrayal, and death in the fall of the mutants, and uh, the X Men in the best of Marvel comics. So there's just a little bit of an update and a promo for uh, the X Men. So the main story here is Captain America and the idea that um he is going to be replaced because I think he essentially quit yeah in, in issue 332 he resigned with with some conflict over the uh president's commission on superhuman activities so he resigned and uh i think it was john walker the super patriot is taking over he's forming a new team and having uh this identity as the captain so there's just going to be a lot of interesting conflict getting set up and i believe it will culminate in issue number 350 which my friend had at one point, and I may have read or borrowed from him, where it's where that culminates with the Captain versus Captain America, and I think the Red Skull is behind everything, or or there's the Red Skull is somehow involved or something. It's it's an area. The Mark Grunewald Captain America is something I've never abs- read at all, and I'm just kind of curious as to see what it's like. So uh, I might check out see what's on Marvel Unlimited for that. Stan goes into this whole thing about the Captain America um, and then uh, again goes into what TV movie sort of stuff is something a Woody, Whoopi Goldberg thing called the telephone. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember this movie, but as Elliot Gould, John Hurd, Severin Darden, and Hervé Villachazzi. Yeah, I don't. No. Fred Hembeck's cartoon is Captain America. Um, there is a, a preview of an epic comics thing called Blood, a Tale, um, written by J.M. DeMatteis with fully painted art by Kent Williams. I believe it's a vampire thing. Story of one man's quest to discover truth in a strange, mysterious world. He meets vampires, religious fanatics, and the dead. Eerie, action-packed, and decidedly different. Blood is written by J.M. DeMatteis, etc., etc. And they they interview uh, DeMatteis and a couple other people. The artwork's really um, pretty. It, it it reminds me a little bit of the artwork Scott Hampton did on the fully painted Batman Night Cries graphic novel from the early 90s. There is a... St- piece on captain justice there is star spotlight on the air raiders the marvel age is 1975 part four i'm kind of curious as to how far they got with this huge uh history of marvel comics thing 
The letter column title this time around is from the files of Willie Lumpkin. Let's see who's writing in. Layman Shaw, who's the vice president, not the president, the vice president of the Tepan Junior High Comics Club of Ann Arbor, Michigan, has one, two, three, four, five questions for the editors. One, what is the relationship father and son causes brothers between the beast and the of the former Avenger and the beast who's currently of act? X Factor, and they answer. Actually, it's pretty close relationship. They're the same guy. Uh, you probably just didn't realize because of the blue fur Hank was sporting his Avenger days. Incidentally, the Beast has also been a member of the Defenders, not to mention a founding member of the original X Men. Oh, I think this is around the time that that the Beast actually had his um his human form back as opposed to the blue Beast form. So I guess that's why the person was confused. Number two, when and why did uh. Thor give up the human guise of Dr. Blake, and the answer was Odin created Thor's mortal alter ego way back when as a means of teaching the Thunder God humility. When Odin finally decided that Thor had learned his lesson in Thor 340, he removed the enchantment which turned Thor into Don Blake. What do you suppose the American Medical Association has had to say about that? Number three, how much time passes in an average comic book? The answer, that's a tough one, there's an enormous range. Probably most comics take place in the space of a day or two, but the Emperor Doom graphic novel, for example, spanned an entire month. And during the recent West Coast Avengers time travel saga, each issue reached from ancient Egypt to the Old West to the present. Sheesh, no wonder we have so much trouble staying on schedule. Four, how come everyone says Spider-Man isn't a real professional superhero? The answer, gee, we don't remember anybody saying that, but if you're asking why Spider-Man gets less respect than, say, Captain America, well, don't forget that Spidey's not only sanctioned by the, not sanctioned by the government, but he also gets an awful lot of bad press. And, of course, there's always the famous Peter Parker luck to deal with. And finally, five, what it, does it take to beat Spider-Man? We can't print the answer to that, layman. What if Dr. Octopus is reading this column? Uh, the letter of the month is from Jim Reed of Upper Sandusky, Ohio, and it has to do with international relations. To anyone at Marvel Comics who wishes to answer my letter, I'm writing this letter because of a question that has come up to my mind recently. Why would the Soviet government sponsor a super agent program such as the Soviet super soldiers? We just studied the USSR in world studies, and I have found a lot out about the Soviet Union. For example, do you know anything about their literature? Ever since 1917, when the communist government took over, the government has pushed politics and literature and art and just about everything else. A quote from Thomas Miller, my world studies teacher. When boy meets girl in the Soviet Union, they ask, they talk about mass production of their products. I blurted out, talk about a boring relationship, to which Mr. Miller replied, that's exactly right. It's boring. The point I'm trying to make is that the Soviet government doesn't want to spend any spread any ideas. That's why there are no comic books or mystery stories in the Soviet Union. Talk about boring. So if the government doesn't want to spread ideas, why create a world-known supergroup? The idea that the there are superpower beings in the United in mutants in the USSR would drive someone crazy enough to find out more about them and where they got their powers, and sell the story to an underground newspaper. World word would get surely get around that there are superpower beings in the USSR, and they would have what Marvel Earth has in the U.S. fear of mutants, and these mutants are supported by the government. People might even discover how mutants came to be and try to become superhuman, as they would soon discover that Homo Superior is better than Homo Sapiens. This has already started in the U.S. on Marvel Earth, so how? 
far behind can the Soviets be? And why doesn't the USSR have as many heroes and or villains as the US? And for that matter, why would any comic book company create a superhero, Soviet hero or group of heroes? Here's the response. You've raised some pretty interesting points there, Jim. Let me see what we can do to answer them. You have to remember that the U.S. and Russia are the two largest superpowers in the world these days, and that means their governments keep a pretty close eye on each other. Back when the U.S. first developed nuclear weapons, the Soviets rushed madly to create atomic bombs of their own because until their strength equaled the Americans, they felt they were in danger of being attacked and possibly destroyed, and so began the never-ending insanity of the arms race which we've all come to know and love. Now let's think about super beings for a minute. On Marvel Earth, the U.S. has tons of them, and that represents a threat to their Soviet Union. We're not saying that American superheroes would attack Russia, just as we're not saying that U.S. is about to launch nuclear missiles. But to the Soviets, the possibility of an American super attack exists, and that poses the same danger as American nuclear superiority would. So it makes sense that the USSR would work around the clock to try to create super beings of its own to bridge the superhero gap. And it also makes sense that they would publicize their heroes. After all, to paraphrase the movie Dr. Strangelove, what good is a deterrent if nobody knows you have it? That's our opinion anyway. Anybody out there know more about life in the Soviet Union? If so, write in and add your two cents to this discussion. Actually, this pretty this whole idea would bring some pretty interesting summit meetings. Can't you just picture Reagan telling Gorbachev, we'll take away Iron Man's armor if you get rid of the Crimson Dynamo and 17 cruise missiles? Scott Miller of Eldersburg, Maryland, asked for a Punisher graphic novel and asked if there are uh, any more epic comics coming out. They say no plans for Punisher graphic novel, but... There is definitely a uh, a lot of epic stuff coming down the line. We do see it advertised quite a bit in this magazine. Richard D. Willis does not like the comics, but he's like April Fool, whatever. Um, and he's the same Richard. It was the second letter he because he was ugh. He sent two letters and they both got printed. How the heck do you how the heck do you manage that? Uh, the Marvel Age Pen Pal Club is has a little bit of an inset here, and there's a bunch of people who have published their addresses and their uh, their ages, if they said, and their favorite s- series. So you have John Boeck, who's 14, of Fort Collins, Colorado, who likes the X-Men, Fallen Angels, and X-Factor. Jason Page of... Uh, Cornelius, North Carolina, who also likes the X-Men, X-Factor, and uh, Power Pack. Alan Reed of Quebec, who likes Power Pack, X-Men, and the Avengers. Todd McLean of Savannah, Georgia, who likes X-Men, Iron Man, G.I. Joe, Special Missions. And Blake Wilkie, who is of Jonesboro, Georgia. He didn't say his age, but his favorites were The Punisher, Captain America, and The Avengers. The inside back cover ad is for DP7. Says uh, cleaning up their act is getting downright dirty. There's two characters standing out a outside of a clinic of institute for I guess it's paranormal research with the words war scrawled over it and graffiti. Oh, there's three people because one of them is busting through the sign. It says the fight for control of the clinic begins in T- DP7 by Mark Grunewald, Paul Ryan, and Denny 
Blandy. And the Marvel Age calendar for September uh, shows Mike Zek's birthday is September 6th with the Punisher saying, go ahead, make mine Marvel. Roger Stern's birthday is September 17th. He's getting a salute from a bunch of Marvel heroes. Iron Man is wishing Bob Layton a happy birthday on the 25th. Um, and uh, and there you go. Oh, Jim Shooter is the 27th, and you see a very, very tall man standing among tall skyscrapers with people below him saying, Happy birthday, Jim Shooter. And he's saying, My public. So I guess it's a little bit of a last shot at Shooter on his way out the door. And I'm on my way out the door. That'll do it. I'll be back one more time, but not until November. Um, that's right. On November 17th, I will be looking at one final comic book, and that's G.I. Joe number 69, and I will be wrapping up this entire podcast series. So until then, you can leave me feedback on the blog at popcultureaffidavit.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. By email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and on Twitter at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.